and welcome to a special episode of the Spoiler Room. I am have the honor today of being joined by Patrick Reed Johnson, the director of one of the films we are talking about on our special 25th anniversary series of episodes, Spaced Invaders. Patrick, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. How are you doing today, sir? Doing really well. Glad to be here. It was a little bit of a last-minute panic. I uh, had some transportation issues. My 1975 Ford Pinto is currently... Uh, on life support at the local garage, and uh, so I'm sharing a car with my girlfriend, and we were racing another another event she needed to be at. When suddenly I went, oh wait, six o'clock! I've got to be on my podcast with Mark. You know, so. Well, I, I, I'm glad you didn't uh, hit anything uh, with a Pinto, because we know how that kid goes. Well, Pinto, it wasn't even that. We were in her car, thank God. Yeah. Oh. It's <laughs> be a mushroom cloud in flames. Gelatinized version of me. Uh, so you've done many things, not only direct, but uh, worked in special effects uh, for, I would say, most of your career. Uh, but you had a chance uh, to direct your first feature, which involved both directing and special effects, which was Spaced Invaders. Now, that was based off of a small budget uh, picture you had planned called Martians, correct? Well, here's what happened. I, I had started out uh, in the film industry as a, a model maker in the visual effects end of things, back when everything was analog and motion control, and, and a young man um, whose name will be familiar to most highfalutin geeks now, uh, named John Knoll, and I became buddies in those days, working for people like Mark Stetson and Greg Jean, and the great sort of model-making geniuses of the time, and we, we, we were in the same model shop together, and we just became pals, and, and became friends over time, worked on a lot of jobs together, and um, at, at a certain point, John had he had been dreaming of working at ILM, and I had kind of been dreaming of the same thing, but it was really one, you know, I wanted to write and direct movies, and I'd already sold a couple of screenplays, and I'd directed some second unit stuff, and I'd, uh, you know, done a lot of visual effects work, and John finally got his dream job and went up to be a, a effects guy up at ILM, and, um, and I continued with my sort of model-making screenwriting dual career, uh, and at a certain point, though, I was about eight years into that when you know, I was thinking, I haven't really gotten what I set out to achieve out here. And I, I remember I, another friend of mine, Stephanie Ang, um, who was an editor, a sound editor over at, for Doug Trumbull, actually. Uh, r right around the same time, John Knoll said, you know what you should do, Patrick? You should write something that only you know guys like you and I can do for a certain amount of money. You know, because we know special effects. And I said, yeah. And, then, and then, like on the same day he said that on the phone, I got a, a, a card in the mail, just a greeting card for no special purpose other than just as an encouragement from my friend Stephanie. And it just, it was a far side card. And all I remember was that the, the punchline, I don't remember what the joke was. I remember the setup. The punchline was focus. Focus. <laughs> okay. And, um, and she was basically saying what I kind of already knew, which that I was sort of meandering around creating lots of big epic motion pictures on paper. You know, I wrote something called Star Sailor, which is going to be Doug Douglas Trumbull's next film. Nice. Um, I, I wrote, I was noodling around with the beginnings of the idea for Dragonheart at the time, but I was writing these sort of epic entertainments, and I haven't even, hadn't even directed my first film yet. You know, so Stephanie and John, in their each in their way, were basically saying to me, look, you know, pare down, go back to your inspiration, find something that you can do well for no money, focus, you know, get, get, get acute, find something. And I remember, 
at one time, when I was growing up, one of my favorite films that my father and mother and I used to watch when I was a little kid was The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Oh, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. Terrific movie. If anyone doesn't know the story real quickly, it's about a stranded Russian Soviet submarine crew on a little island off the East Coast that they've run aground spying on America, and it's Alan Arkin is sent out. He's one of the Russian sailors. is sent out with a crew of idiots and with machine guns to secure a motorboat, a power bolt, power motor bolt, as they are calling it, you know, to to pull this submarine off the shoals and get it the hell out of there before the Americans discover they're there. Well, unfortunately, this is the height of the Cold War. The, the people of the village and the island uh, are are given to panic at the idea that the Russians are invading because as soon as word gets out that Russians are, you know, heading for town. Uh, through you know the sort of devil's radio of, of, of telephone tag of we the Russians are here. There are Russians <laughs> guns. The Russians are killing people. There's thousands dead. You know, basically, it turns into this complete fiasco for both sides. And I won't give away the ending. But it's a terrific ending for the movie, and it was made for you know nothing with a bunch of great actors, and um, and it it just stuck with me all these years. But I I thought well you can't really remake it because by the time I was we're talking about 1989 1990 and there I mean it's the end of the Cold War the the walls are coming down everything everything's kind of coming unglued for 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 good movie writing anyway and, so, and for <laughs> the Russians being bad guys at that time and oh, by the way I love Russians many many Russians. <laughs> Been there. Russia's not a bad place. There's just certain elements of the government, like ours, that I don't agree with. But um, so I thought, well, wait a minute. Why? As of science fiction's my favorite thing in the universe. Plus, times comedy. Times, you know, why not replace the Russians with Martians? And have and and then it occurred to me. All right, you know, 50 years ago to the day almost that we were. Well, it was 49 years ago when we were writing this thing. Uh, was the War of the Worlds broadcast, which you know, scared the pants off an entire nation. I thought, who'd be stupid enough to fall for it now? What if Martians <laughs> heard it and they thought they'd missed out? What if the wackiest ship in the Martian Navy overheard that broadcast, but it was a rebroadcast 50 years later of some nostalgic guy at a radio station in the middle of nothing Illinois just playing it just to kind of cheer up his depressed farm town on Halloween night, and it changes everything because they overhear this broadcast and like, what? We missed the invasion? For <laughs> Earth, looking for this big invasion, and of course they're three feet tall with watermelon heads and antennae and horrible guns that don't work, and you know they they can't even get arrested, let alone take over the world. You know, they're mistaken for trick or treaters and shoved in the back of a country square station wagon. You know, um, so we, I wrote this thing with my friend Scott Alexander, and we, I mean, it took us. I think we wrote the first draft in a month. <laughs> Every night, you know, sure. everybody up to the dawn, you know, and we got this thing done. And uh, the, the person I was living with at the time, I had a roommate named Jason Clark, uh, who produces now, like, the, the Seward Little films, mm -hmm. and just did the Cosmos series, you know. Uh, so he's, a, you know, he, he got a lot out of this, you know. This, he was working for a guy named Luigi Cingolani, a terrific guy, a, a amazing a producer of sort of low budget, you know, the kind of films you would see. They had a place called Smart Egg Releasing, and they would produce films that you would see at, like, AFM. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. A poster and a videotape, and they'd sell it to foreign markets and everything. And, they, and they'd done pretty well for themselves. They had some cash. And Jason was developing for them and producing for them, and he, he said, what's the script I hear you guys laughing about all the time? I said, oh, it's this little thing, you know, you might want to read it. And he read, he read it, loved it so much, he took it into his boss. He calls me that, or he comes home that night over our usual dinner of macaroni and cheese. He's like, dude. My boss wants to meet you, and I'm like, Luigi Cingolani? <laughs> is it safe? Will I end up with a horse head in my bed? <laughs> I 
I'm making fun of him, but I knew he really liked the guy, and he thought the guy had, you know, some balls and was willing to take on interesting and willing to take on, you know, first-time directors. Because he could get them cheap, and we'd do great work to impress, and it was a perfect narrative. So we, you know, we met, and I brought in my whole little dog and pony show, Scott Alexander and myself, and we had uh, Kenny Myers, the, the amazing makeup effects guy, had done a maquette of The Martian, as we saw it at the time, um, which was still three feet tall uh, with watermelon head and a tenant, but the bodies were like pencil stick figure out. <laughs> you know, yeah. achieve. You, today you could do it, but, you know, so, and I had built uh, uh, study models of the Martian patrol ship, oh, sure. and the Enforcer drone, and all these, we had all these things that we could kind of set on the desk, and I acted out the whole movie, and, you know, did sound effects and blew things up, and, you know, in my mind, and in front of and it was, it was, he kind of sat back. He goes, I love it. It's fantastic. Okay, I'll tell you what. How much you need? I said, I need $1.75 million. No, I said, I need $2 million to do this right. And we budgeted it to the best of our ability, and we thought we were correct. And by the way, before Luigi had picked this up, we'd gone all over town with it. Um, and it had been uniformly laughed at. I mean, you know, the, the final place we went before Luigi was Disney. And, and Jeffrey Katzenberg himself said, look, you know, this is – this is great, but I, and, you know, I'll do it, but it's going to be $13 million and it's going to, it's going to, you're going to have to have like, uh, Vern meets the Martians. Sure. And it's going to have to be uh, Jim Varney, you know, yeah. as your lead. And we wanted DeForest Kelly to play the old guy. At this time, <laughs> like there was never going to be another Star Trek movie. So we were like, we thought, okay, they'll do it. Right. Um, and we actually got into some talks with him about doing it right before they did another Star Trek movie. Sure. <laughs> available, which was actually the best thing that could have happened ultimately because uh, Royal Dana was so good in the movie. So he said, I'll give you $1.75 million, and I'm not a penny more. And I said, but we need two. He goes, Patrick, look at yourself. Who are going to give you anything? You're nobody. I give you $1.75 million. Who else is going to do that? And I'm like, he's got a point. So <laughs> took hands, and, and then we went and made this little movie. For about two million dollars, <laughs> but, but I mean, what we achieved for two million dollars? I mean, look, it, it's not Terminator, you know, <laughs> but it's got some really fun stuff. And I called my friend John Knoll and I said, John, I wrote this thing. And meanwhile, John has ascended to doing uh, the Abyss. He's oh, working, sure. So by day, he's working on the Abyss, doing the water tentacle, designing how that's going to get done, thinking that up. Okay. And animating it and doing all that, and and then at night, as soon as he clocks up out of ILM, he's racing across the Oakland Bridge to a little warehouse in Oakland, where a bunch of other ILM guys have raced over, and they're all working all night long on this these, these like t these motion control rigs made out of literally anything they could find. Right? <laughs> they were like making they were churning out shots for our film at a budget of like I don't know a hundred dollars a shot or two hundred dollars. Sure. Because he was doing it as my best friend, and I was best man at his wedding, and he was best man at mine, and we were sort of this amazing um, conglomeration. Scott Alexander was working on it, and we had Tony Tremblay, this great production designer, and, we, and basically my philosophy was, all right, I've been given the keys to the kingdom. I get to direct my first movie, right? Sure. So I'm going to get the best people I could possibly get, not by trying to find people who are all in these great positions and asking them to take a huge pay cut and work on my goofy little movie, they're not sure who I am. I instead looked around for people who'd mostly never done the mm -hmm. job they were about to do, but had done the job just beneath it for years, and were sure. great at it, and not yet been given that opportunity. And so I, 
I hired. I mean, that's not. I mean, you know, uh, we had we had plenty of people who had done their jobs. But like, you know, our costume designer Sonia Hayes had uh, Sonia Milkovich. Uh, she's now she does all the Fast and Furious films. Right? Sure. Okay. Time. She'd been a, a wardrobe supervisor, a costume assistant. She'd never really done any major films. You know, Ariana Richards had never done anything. <laughs> Just a couple of little bit parts, but she was phenomenal. You know, um, um, you know, so Tony Tremblay had never really been a production designer before. He was mostly an art director, but he was stepped right into the role. And of course, they all took it on with relish. You know, um, uh, who else was? We had a couple others like that. Um, I mean. David Russo, the composer, he had scored other little films, but he'd never done a full orchestral score that I'm aware of before. He did a <laughs> job on this. Um, who else did we elevate? Oh, the, the, I don't know if you know, uh, let's see, Greg Aronowitz. Have you ever heard of Greg Aronowitz? Uh, no, I'm not familiar really? with the name. All those reproduction things for the Star Wars stuff, all the reproduction Oh, pictures. okay. Mm-hmm. And his company is way beyond that now. He's a producer, director, whatever, a makeup effects guy. He was just this young, upstart, new guy. He and, and, and uh, oh, God, my God, I'm losing my – do you have our credits in front of you? There's I, I, yeah, I do have the um, – who else? I mean, we've got – there were just so many people who got kind of, kind of got a start. Sure. Uh, Greg Johnson um, and who else? Uh so you had uh, Car- James Carter for your cinematography. He's you know, done a, a number of things and was terrific. Sure. Um, you know, uh, who was the uh, – there was someone else I wanted to mention. Um, I'll, think, I'll think of it. But oh, we, we just had tons and tons and tons of people working for us who had just been given this opportunity to start their, their, their sort of dream job. Sure. On this. And so they worked their hearts out. You know, they just – they they – you couldn't you couldn't hold them back. You, you threw them a challenge, they'd just take it and run, and they'd come back with something far beyond your expectation. So every time I'd say, just, you know, we need a prop of this little communicator thing, and, it's, and what I want to have is these little dealy bobs that come out sort of like, you know, uh, party favors, <laughs> you know, and, and these guys went off and made this little, you know, pneumatic, <laughs> which is a prop that on, a, you know, on another movie might have taken a huge budget, but they just caught I remember, I said, I need a V8 engine. That a guy can lift out of the front of a truck that Verndroid can lift out, and they're like, we don't have a budget to build some property. <laughs> and Greg Aronowitz ran off, he got some foam core and some Tupperware and some, you know, and a hot milk glue gun and some spray paint. Two days later, he goes, look, a V8, you know, <laughs> with this thing that look, it looks for all it's got cables and it's leaking oil and it's like, and it was fantastic. It was it was kind of like nobody knew. It's like like um. Like the Roadrunner, when he when he's, he doesn't know the laws of gravity, so he can't fall. You know, if he, nobody knew what they couldn't do, so they just ended up doing it. No, they'd never they'd never hit a limit before. Sure. So I wasn't going to give them any limits. They didn't have any. You know, <laughs> it was really really fun. Really. Well, oh, and uh, wow, that's a great story. Uh, I was wondering that led me to wonder um, how much creative control you had, or was it more of a? It sounds like it was more of a collaborative effort among all of you on. The design in that for when you were working on it, or did did you have a, a you know did you come up nah that's not going to work or you know well, oh, that's interesting um, like John Criswell was mm-hmm. the you know John Criswell and, and Greg Johnson were the the heads of the uh, the uh, makeup effects you know right. and Steve Lang was the painter for the you know for the the Martian heads and everything we I think he sculpted on them as well and uh, we 
we just we had a lot of really really talented people that were sort of at the beginnings of their career. Everybody was throwing in on the design work. I mean, I did a lot of sketching of what I wanted things to basically be like to start out with, and then as I said, Kenny Myers helped us refine the look of the Martian head, and then Steve Wang got involved, John Criswell. Um, we uh, we so you know John Criswell runs the shop over at Handsome Creature Shop now, right. the application shop, you know, and the mechanicals. Um, and and so there was and there was this real. Uh, fervor to do something, you know, that shouldn't be able to be done for that amount of money. <laughs> well, sure. because everybody thought, from me on down, if I do something that should not be able to be done for this amount of money, people are going to pay attention. You know, right. so everybody put way more into it than they were getting paid for, um, which was a miracle at every turn. Look, did it all work perfectly? No. And some some of the charm of the movie is that it's mostly goofy. It's kind of willfully cheesy, somebody once said. One run review called it willfully cheesy, and I thought, that's, I can live with that. It's okay. I mean, we, it's never, it's never, it never set out to be anything other than wildly entertaining, but in a, in a completely sort of Monty Python-esque way. I mean, I'd much rather, if, if, if for the rest of my life, my life, I could make movies that were, that used effects and visuals more like, you know, Terry Gilliam, and less like, say, certain large <laughs> soul related films that are full of pixels and no no life um, I, I rubber over pixels every any day of the week you know oh i've i've always been a big advocate of practical effects cuz i think they age better too well, absolutely do you look at i mean i'm looking now well look at star wars mm-hmm. i mean honestly some of the stuff that was done with rubber versus some of the stuff that was done early, early especially early on with pixels. Oh, yeah. And, I, and I, I'm a fan of both. I mean, I'm not one of these either or guys. And that's and John Knoll, you know, my, my friend, and 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 J.J. Abrams obviously have elected with the new Star Wars films and Kathy Kennedy. They all got together and they said, "Now come on, let's you, you know, let's bring it back to the tactile. Let's bring it back." I mean, I remember in the first Star Wars films, the things, the most romantic. By romantic, I mean epically romantic, I don't mean love, I mean the most romantic images in that film for me as I remember the first 28 or 30 times I saw it in a theater were were those two robots out on sand dunes in the middle of nothing. Mm-hmm. There was no pixels, no matte paintings, no, just two robots on sand under the evening sky. That to me typified the beauty of how science fiction could be wrought through cinema, through real cinema. Mm-hmm. tactile, analog, beautifully lensed cinema. And it also let me know the rest of the film that was literally made out of things that you could find lying around your garage became sort of my touchstone, my model, my, my mantra, the, the, what I would always hoped for, you know, because that's how I started. I was making movies out of things I could find lying around my garage. <laughs> and, that, and that's truly what Star Wars was, from the from the costumes on down to, to the miniatures. Everything was a kludge job of of greebles and nernies and things that found objects repurposed. That's why it struck such a core, I think, in young people's imaginations, Because not because it was all that far away, but because it was actually incredibly close to home. Because, I mean, all the way down to, you know, in, in Empire with the, the ice cream maker. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, these things meant something to us because they were our world repurposed the way kids play in their living room or their basement or their backyard. And and so we tried. We did the same thing, or tried to, with Space Invaders in its own little way. I mean, it didn't become the hit that Star Wars became, but it, for its money, I mean, it made a thousand percent of its money back. That's <laughs> too bad. 
that's not too bad. No, and I, I think it look. I'll say right now the practical effects in there look great. I just watched it again uh, the other night, and I was watching this going, wow, you know, this could go toe to toe with the other larger budget practical effects movies back well, then. You know, the effects guys did an amazing job. The the, uh, the art department, Tony Trembley's group, and the various construction people we had, they were crazy. We. They took on the job of taking Asteroid Patrol ship X59YPQ, which is actually X59YPQ is the license plate of my car at the time. <laughs> That's how we came up with that. There's no secret code or anything. But, um, but to take that object that we built and have them build it full size on set so there could be in the crashed in the barn like that, and if inside and out, full size, mm-hmm. all one bit, you know, and then take it out of location and put it up on its ass, you know, for launch mode. And you thought, I remember the first time I drove out, because that was one of the first days of shooting. I drove out to the location, and from 10 miles away, I could see this thing standing tall <laughs> out where they got China Beach, you know, out in the valley. It went way the hell out there in uh, north of, I don't know how it was, west of Valencia. I'm a, I can't remember where it is out in the west valley of, of above San Fernando Valley or Simi Valley, Thousand Oaks, out that way somewhere. Sure. I just remember coming over this rise and seeing my giant Martian patrol ship gleaming in the morning <laughs> light. You know, they went. I mean, how many movies do that? I mean, yeah. the miniature. We could have just done it all with a miniature, matte paintings and all that. But to have it full size like that—that's why. I mean, it's no Millennium Falcon, but no. so excited that, that there's a 360-degree interior exterior Millennium Falcon from now on in Star Wars. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> Whatever else you do, I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, it's an impressive ship. Uh, I mean, all the practical inf- effects in there are, are actually impressive. Uh, I, I could definitely see the uh, Star Wars influence, though, in a lot of your design and a lot of the designs, namely, like, the fleet. Was it a little bit of an ode to the Calamari capital ships that you had there? Not really, and I'll tell you why. I mean, it, what happened, I'll tell you how that design came about. The Cactus ship, the, the Atomic Imperial Space Navy Battlecruiser, yeah. Was um, I was racking my brain. Tony and I had been doing drawings. Scott and I were doing drawings. I was kludging together things from battleship parts and trying out different things, you know, as you do, mm-hmm. as you do. And sure. and one day I was over. I, I think uh, for some reason I was at Raleigh Studios, and they had this old, you know, in Hollywood, and they have this cantina. This this yeah, you probably mm-hmm. have been there. This little Mexican cantina where you could eat your lunch, you know, and. I was seated at a table, and I was hunched over at this table looking at my script and drawing, drawing some storyboards or something, and I look over to my left, and in the corner of this room that I'm sitting in is three, are three churro cactus or cacti in a pot. And as I'm like this, I'm not seeing them sticking up. I'm seeing them sideways, and it's like this moment, and it's like you know, Moonwatcher finding the, looking at the bone, and I'm staring at it. And before I know it, and, and, and before the rest of the people like trying to have their lunch know it, I'm standing up next to this thing going. <laughs> you know, just trying to imagine this going by. And I'm like, and all the bristles could be guns. Turrets. And I call, I call up you know, Tony, and I start sketching this thing. And I call up John Nolan, and I say, I got it, I got it, I got it. You know, so I send him photos of this churro cactus, and that's what they modeled it on. <laughs> Great, the fleet of churro cactuses. But it seemed appropriate. I don't know, it's appropriate to these idiots that had gotten their entire culture through our TV and radio broadcasts. 
that, that's what I was going to ask Ness. That's the impression I got with their culture because you see a lot of influences in their costuming and the way they talk. Namely, uh, whose decision was it to have Blasny talk like Jack Nicholson? I. <laughs> <laughs> the original thought was, I mean, the movie actually used to, it, it, at first it opened, and it was we, we scripted it this way, and then we had to cut it for cost reasons. And it, we, it started with Carl Sagan sitting there with a bottle at JPL, stare, you know, blearily watching these monitors for the Viking landers. Right, and one of them's going, it's going to go dead any minute, you know. And the other one's still kind of putz, putzing along, and he's just and the, and the, there's like a janitor behind him, Mr. Sagan. You should probably go home. It's been ten years or twenty, you know, whatever. <laughs> twenty years. I don't think there's any life up there. And he's like. And as he puts his head down on the janitor and turns away, you see an ice cream cone land right in front of frame, just blot, right? And all of a sudden, you know, as he's sitting there packing up his stuff behind him, there's like these arms come in, and like a hatch opens, and one of these little drones, like, you know, uh, scout in a can, yeah. come flying in, and they, like, sweep up the ice cream cone and go out of frame. And you tilt up, and you see that the whole Viking lander is in the middle of this big diorama with a cyclorama photograph around it in a shopping mall on Mars under the domed surfaces that are painted to look like the surface of Mars. <laughs> and it was some little Martian Boy Scout who dropped his ice cream cone, like, you idiot! That didn't dump me, though. So, and, and, so, and then we were going to get a little tour of Mars City you know, and get this kind of sense that everything there was being sucked out of the radio and TV frequencies from Earth that they didn't have any nascent technological abilities of their own at all. And that everything they built was some kind of, well, it kind of should look like this. It did in, you know, uh, 12 o'clock high, the, the sure. farmers looked like this. <laughs> you know, they're building their spaceships to look like, you know, P-47s and B-17s, you know. <laughs> so, but, you know, that was obviously way too much for our you know, right. technical prowess and budget at the time. So that all went out the window. But we thought, you know what, people will just infer. They'll just get it. And mostly they did. Some people were like, what? And other people <laughs> really, you know, said, ah, you know what, I bet. You know, it's like it caused arguments. That's what you want. When you're making an important film, you want people to argue about it around coffee tables and, you know, and, 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 and have, you know, intellectual discussions about the depth of your film. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just love Blasny. I, when he spoke in uh, Jack Nicholson voice, uh, when I first saw this, when I was 15, uh, I loved it because I'm a big Jack Nicholson fan. Uh, you know, there was the hype that you had just heard he was going to be, uh, well, uh, he was going to be the Joker. Yeah. Well, he was the Joker at that time, yeah, because when this came out, he was just the Joker, so I fell in love with him yeah. as the Joker. And here you have the alien talking like him. Well, <laughs> it's funny because we almost got sued into the Stone Age for it. Um, oh. Ultimately... It was more of a threat than anything. By, I think by his lawyers, I don't think he cared one whit. He probably didn't know. Probably still doesn't know. <laughs> if you're listening, no offense. No, it was, I mean, the whole idea was the Martians chose personalities based on TV programs and radio shows as well. That's why each of the Martians actually is a certain movie star. Blasny is uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, uh, Dr. Ziplock is basically Dr. Strangelove. He's Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove. Um, Captain Dipto is, uh, who is he meant to be? Uh, well, it's kind of like, I don't know, Keenan Wynn. Yeah. <laughs> Basically Keenan Wynn. And then, um, and then um, Lieutenant Giggywig is, uh, is uh, uh, Patton? Carrie, Carrie Grant. Oh, Carrie Grant, okay. <laughs> and 
so he's, you know, and, and we went very specifically in that direction. And I'm the enforcer drum, so I'm not, there's no one famous there. Quick, quick. <laughs> a quick vacuuming, a little air freshener, and I will keep my booties with attention. <laughs> with a lot of pitch transposing and echo. And oh, sure. I, I, I love the uh, design of the Enforcer drone. Uh, definitely kind of had a little bit of a probe droid feel to him. Definitely meant to, you know, and, and here again I thought, well, it's contemporary. They could have seen Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> they their Enforcer drones based on the probe droid, you know. And if he he had badass, a, you might as well be the latest version of badass possible. <laughs> he had a lot of moving parts. Uh, one yeah. of the other the other robot that I really like though the only other robot in there really uh, is the scout robot, which right. reminded mm-hmm, and he reminded me of um, the droids from Batteries Not Included actually the little droids. Which is a terrific film. I lo- I really love that film and 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 I can say I, you know. I don't know if I was consciously influenced by that because I certainly didn't remember thinking of that when I did it. But I can say that uh, certainly, probably unconsciously, because I found those designs to be really, really sweet. I think I was as much what I wanted to do in essence was was the the robotic version of Mar- Marvin the Martian at that point. But I wanted him to be simpler than that. I wanted him to be like you know just almost like a little wind up toy, just a, an automatic thing and and a tool. Yeah, and uh, if anything, he was our R two D two. Sure. I mean, it was actually trying to do our version of R two D two in a way, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that worked out pretty well. Um, he was he. That was another real interesting. I mean, that entire character is all sleight of hand because we we couldn't you know animate him. We didn't we didn't have time or or any. We, one of the things I kind of regret is that we never did any stop motion animation in the movie at all because I love stop motion. It just no one on our team was really proficient at it, and it was, it was a time suck. Um, and, but luckily, um, the makeup effects team also created Scout McCann, and they let, they made him do a lot of things. I mean, he had a lot of motion. He had a lot of arm motion and head ability. And, you know, but, but the idea of him sort of collapsing off screen with a sound effect and then using one of those little radio control roller balls as his <laughs> collapsed form to go, you know, we, we actually had scenes where he'd roll around corners and do stuff, but it, it took a lot to do that. We ended up just chucking the damn thing across lawns. <laughs> Uh, now, they always uh, warn, and I, I have to ask, they always warn, uh, especially for newer directors, you never work with pets or kids. And you end up working pets, with... Kids, robots, Martians, <laughs> old people, cars, trucks, guns, and it was 90% of it was shot indoors in a stage about 100 feet by 50 feet with about a 13-foot ceiling. Really? Wow. Much outdoor material, <laughs> especially the night stuff. All the stuff of her running up and down roads and then going up and down roads at night, all on stage, with forced perspective cornfield backgrounds with little city lights made out of Christmas lights, and um, we, we had something called the cornomatic. That was that was our greatest achievement. The cornomatic was literally, you know, the Flintstones background but done real. It was <laughs> two giant sonotube, you know, concrete former tubes motorized with a big chicken wire conveyor belt built around them, stuffed with corn stalks. <laughs> Turn that thing on it. It would just put corn stalks going by. And then, we, you know, we had the, the car, the, the sheriff's vehicle, sure. sitting in front of that, being bounced around by the grips, and the camera was being bounced and moved a little bit closer, a little farther away, and there, was, there were dust guns shooting little puffs of 
dirt and smoke through. And every now and then, we had a, we literally went so far as to build like a foam rubber um, a telephone pole, right? That we would sometimes just throw that thing in and it seems to that. And then like a stop sign on the telephone pole, you know. And you know, with all that and the sound effects and them, you know, pretending, it, it looks like it, it looks like they're driving. It, but it, it it does look like it's driving, and I think the effect fits the rest of the overall visuals of the film, though. So when you do see but that, the way... Even if you kind of begin to tell at some point... We did that also with, with houses. That's when it became the real Flintstone effect. When they're driving in the station wagon, we're in the back of the station wagon, and you see the house lights going by, it's just like the Flintstones. We've just got a conveyor belt. There's lights inside now, and instead of chicken wire, it's just black scenic paper with cutouts and gels just going... <laughs> That's awesome. There's one shot where the Martians are running away. The, the, the donut of destruction has come unglued, and they're running. You know, prepare to die, your son. Prepare to die, your son. I'm going to make sure they carve that on your tombstone. Well, there, <laughs> So there's four of these guys running, but really they're running in place because and, – and the cornomatic's going by behind them. And, and later in that shot, they actually kind of drift out of frame and, like, bump into one of the, like, girders <laughs> that's holding up the building and, and because they couldn't see. Those heads, the eyes were down here on them. Okay, mm-hmm. so they could, there was no place for them to see in the in the one in the heads that had mechanical control in them because all the servos right. and everything were all where their eyes would be. So there was a mirror, a forty-five degree angle mirror in the mouth that they could look down at like this. And so as long as their mouth was open, they could kind of see like this foggy something out there. It became so pathetic that they just like tell us where to go. <laughs> Not only, as they're acting, I'm going, okay, left, left, no, my left, no, oh, no, wait, and crashing into things and knocking over light stands, and it was crazy. Uh, I, I was wondering how you did those masks, because they were impressive, but you could tell the, it was down low, so where the faces were, so that... Really an engineering, I mean, you know, I, I you know, the, the entire makeup effects team, um, you know, Greg Johnson and, and, and John Criswell primarily, uh, were... Just, I mean, they were geniuses, and they've proven themselves to be further on. You know, after this, this was maybe their first big break, but that's how they got noticed. But they, they were so smart. I mean, it was just, <laughs> again, it doesn't work perfectly. But I'll tell you what, for the amount of money they had and the amount of time they had on this low budget of film, it, it's terrific. Some people love the flapping gum look, but the the point is, it, the hardest part was, and I and I know, you know. When you're doing that kind of stuff, I remember working later on the Dinosaurs TV show for Jim Henson, sure. for Brian Henson, my, my friend, and, and you know he, he taught me a valuable lesson that I, I, I kind of wish we'd been able to do on you know on our film. The original sync with people talking. Oh, there's fire engines coming. Um, the original sync with the actual actors inside speaking their lines, with the puppeteers moving with them, was quite good. The problem, of course, was you couldn't use the sound because you could hear the servos and, and right. These, for the most part, weren't really voice actors. Um, in fact, uh, the only one who ended up whose voice is the actual person inside is uh, Kevin Thompson, who plays Blasney. Oh, okay. That's really his Jack Nicholson impersonation. <laughs> the other guys, you know, uh, were, you know, there, there were there were a number of other voice artists who came in and do did, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the other Martians for us, and they were, you know, Bruce Lenoyle is one. I, I'm, I'm going to blank on several of the others now, but Bruce Lenoyle did uh, uh, Corporal Pez. One of my favorite characters, you know. He was and then, really fun. And then, um, you know, but it, and and by the way, and the people inside, uh, you know, the the suits. I mean, you had 
you had uh, Kevin Thompson inside Blasny. Um, you had oh, I'm going to forget names. Tony Cox was Tony Cox best. was inside uh, Corporal Pez, and then uh, Doctor Ziplock was. Um, oh gosh, he's going to hit me. It's all this. I'm being distracted by all this fire and stuff outside. Um, um, uh, it says Debbie Lee Carrington. Debbie Carrington. Who yes. Was, who, the, the reason I should never have forgotten that, besides the fact that she was amazing in that part, is that she was the one. I had you know headphones on, so I could hear all of them talking on a private radio channel, and so I would direct them. They would say stuff back to me. Sometimes they'd just try to try, crack me up because I was the only one who could hear them. I remember one time Luigi and I, because of a because of a paperwork error, Luigi got the impression one day that about 65% of the way through, 75% of the way through the shooting, I'd only actually done about 10% of the movie. <laughs> Some paperwork thing, right? So he comes in and he's freaked out and he's yelling and screaming and he asks, let's take this outside. So we go outside and he and I are buttonholing each other and I'm saying, how dare you accuse me of not doing my job? I've got more footage than this movie could ever use in the time we had it. And he's going, no, I have a good idea on the paper. You didn't even shoot 10% of the movie yet. And, and it was because the, the script supervisor had made the choice that any shot that was going to later have an effect in it would not be credited as a finished shot. Oh. So paper since like 75% of the movie or 60% of the movie had an effect to be later put into it, I had literally, in, in the, if you just went through the books, you would go, my God, he only shot 10% of the movie. We're screwed, right? So he was, he had legitimate concerns that were unfounded, but he didn't know that. So right. he's screaming at me. I'm screaming at him. But I'm trying to keep a straight face because chief amongst the, the pirates in my ears, yelling encouragement and swear words and all kinds of curses and things I should do, I've got Debbie Carrington yelling, kick him in the balls, <laughs> And I'm trying, sitting there trying to have a serious, you know, meltdown, you know, with my producer, with her yelling these, these like sailor-like encouragements for me to brawl with him. It was, it was quite an epic thing to have uh, five uh, actors in Martian suits screaming at you in your in your headpiece. <laughs> well, they they moved around well, though. I I have to admit that uh, they really they had to do and, and try to keep them. Those heads were heavy too. You know, I mean, there's no mm -hmm. discounting the fact that these giant heads. You know, that was a lot. And the costumes, which were beautiful, were also kind of heavy because they had a lot of accoutrement, mm -hmm. there were a lot of you know fittings and belts and you know the heavy material and you know big boots. It was hot. You know, they're on stage. You know, instead of being outside in the cold, where it would have been perfect. Uh, they were on, you know, on their stage lights, trying to make you give us depth of field uh, in a tiny stage, you know, with lots of hot lights. Uh, Jim Carter did an amazing job, though. Um, I remember one time he got real mad at me because he was trying to have light this moonlight coming backlit on this country road. And he's like, and I'm like, come on, Jim, you gotta, you know, we gotta shoot. He's like, I'm trying to light inside a wall. I gotta put a moon in a wall. I can't get the light back enough, far enough for the shadow to not go and spread like a, you know, I mean, he, he, he was right, and I, you know, but he, he was great, did such a great job. Uh, I mean, the movie looks really good, especially for the budget. It, it does. I, I, it, that's why when you mentioned the budget, that surprised me, because it does look like it was made for a lot more money than what it was. And you know, that hurt us um, when a bunch of reviewers said, you know, this is a Disney movie, it's a touchstone movie, you know they had $15, $16 million to make it, yeah, where's the movie, you know? And it's like, if I'd had $15, $16 million, I'd have made five movies! <laughs> or I'd made, you know, a sequel to Star Wars, I would have done something, you know? Um, 
So we kind of were hurt by our some of our success. Sure. But at the same time, the, the coolest thing that happened was when it was finished or just you know, basically done. We hadn't done the final mix, and not all the effects were quite in yet. We started, you know, the producer started shopping it around. And he got a lot of the same thing. He was like, man, you must have spent a lot on this. I don't know. How are you going to make your money back? And he's like, it's only $2 million. You're going to make your money from people who come in from the cold. You know? <laughs> so, but that people just weren't biting. And then one day, my manager, Melinda Jason, had the really, really, really smart idea of calling. She basically set up one screening. <laughs> and she then picked up the phone and she called the president of Warner Brothers. Right, with, you know, and Bruce Berman at the time, and she said, "Bruce, I I'm confused. What? Why aren't you having anyone come to the screening? I mean, I thought you would come, but I may understand if you're busy, but you don't have anyone coming to my 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 client's screening." And, he, and he's like, "What are you talking about? What screening?" And she goes, of, of, "Of this thing called it's called Martians at the time." He goes, "Martians? Do you, everybody's talking. What, you got any? I can't believe you're not sending somebody over." <laughs> he's like, "Of course we're sending somebody over. Why wouldn't we send this over? I mean, I look just a click, you know." Yeah. So, Next thing she knows, she gets a call from somebody junior saying, "I'm, I'm uh, there's a screening I'm supposed to, uh, you know. So she, <laughs> she then gets on the phone, and, oh, and she had said to Bruce, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg's sending somebody, Tom Pollock's sending somebody, the presidents of Disney and uh, Universal, you know, respectively. And, uh, and so she then calls them. Katzenberg, <laughs> she goes, Jeffrey, you're, you're confusing me. Like, Bruce has got somebody coming in screening. You're not. You're going to let Bruce Berman beat you out of this? And so Jeffrey's like, what are, you ta- what, what are you talking about? And so she explained, oh, I'll send somebody. I, really? What you, but, okay, never mind, click. <laughs> he sends somebody. Same thing with Tom Pollock. Same thing with, like, all the major studios, right? She calls, like, everybody. And they all show up. <laughs> Fifteen minutes after that screening is over... They're calling my agent and my manager and saying, uh, "Yeah, okay, we're the, you know, we, we see, okay. So what do you, you know?" But they're not like racing to it. Mm-hmm. They're kind of they they see something there, but they don't they don't know what they see yet. They just know that they don't want to get beat out in case it might be a little cold film that goes big, but they don't quite get it yet. Twenty minutes later, we get a phone call from Amblin. Oh. And they're like, so we heard there was a screening. <laughs> and my manager's like, yes. And, 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 and they were like, what? and so you don't want to show it to us? You don't want to show it to Amblin, really? And, of course, I hadn't even dreamed. I mean, in my wildest dreams, and I'd met Stephen years and years right. and years before. It's in my movie 52577. There was a scene where it, on the set of Close Encounters and – uh, he'd been very encouraging, and it was a dream of mine to work with him someday, but I didn't think in a million years that this film would ever be seen by him unless he was flipping through channels late one night, years later, and found it, you know? So, of course, the agents and managers say, oh, sure, we'll show because you know, all we had was the work print. That was all, you know, so we sent it right over. And as I'm told, I think this has been verified, but as I'm told, um, Stephen and his son Max watched it together in the Amblin Theater, and Stephen liked it so much, he basically told Kathy Kennedy about it. And I got a call from Kathy Kennedy's office to please come over and have a meeting. And they want to, they're going to, they, they called Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney and said, and Stephen called him and said, you should buy this. And, you know, fix it up <laughs> a little bit, you know, pretty, uh, put a, put a touchdown title on it and get it out there. It's a really fun movie, you know, and we'd love to be involved in maybe a Amblin supervised Disney deal kind of thing, you know. And I get this call and, 
<laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> and suddenly we're off with this little movie that was meant to maybe be a video title. Sure. <laughs> now, then, and then so Jeffrey calls and I have a meeting with him, and then he says, what do you want what do you want to do? How do you want to finish this? And I said, what do you, what do we have to do? What, what, let's put it out there. And they're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll do some stuff with it. We'll fix it up and you can do some reshoots and you can get, I'm like, I'm getting a little hinky. I'm just like, oh, oh. wait a minute. It's doing pretty, I mean, Stephen liked it. Why don't we just, put it? <laughs> I mean, it's good enough for Stephen. I think, yeah, so, you know, but he, they, there was a Disney process that they wanted to put us through. Right. It took almost a year. Um, but it, you know, it went out. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that it, it, it ended up, you know, made 20, I mean, a thousand percent of its money back. You know? I was going to say, it, I, I, it, it did do uh, fairly well considering its budget was $2 million. <laughs> I imagine. I'm like, wow. Well, I'll put it this way. I was given a Disney stockholders report by a, a major Disney stockholder from the, the, the fiscal year that that movie mm-hmm. came out. And it was actually listed in their kind of goals for the future. As, Disney, we should focus more on making movies like Space Invaders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say one thing, though. Uh, I have to admit, I remember when, I was, uh, when it came out, the trailer for it, I oh. will say... Uh, I Sorry to bring it up, but I have to ask, because the trailer was completely... Not what the movie was. Well, neither, I, neither was the title Space Invaders. I mean, the original right. concept that which, which we sold it on was it was called Martians with three exclamation points, and it was like you know, prepare to die, Earth scum was the tagline, and it was it, you know the poster was the Iwo Jima pose, only with these Martians planting the Martian flag on a big hill of manure in a farm field or whatever, with the rising moon behind it and the slogan up above, you know, 50 years ago, the war of the world's broadcast scared the pants off an entire nation. Who would be stupid enough to fall for it today? Right. And, you know, Martians, prepare to die, Earth scum. You know, and it was, it was a whole campaign. In fact, Luigi Cingolani, in order to, to, to help sort of pre-sell the movie in foreign markets, he and my guys and my artists and his artists and even my father did one of the original paintings, uh, um, created this campaign that there were all these one-page ads and full-page ads and variety of that poster and different and different character paintings and things like that. And there were these press kits that had 3D posters in them drawn by like some major car- cartoon, some major comic artist. And I can't remember. It's not Jim Steranko, but it was someone that good. It was well, maybe not that good, but almost that good. Uh, and with 3D glasses and punch-out, fold-together paper models of the Enforcer drone and the spaceship. It was like he went full tilt on this to show what a kind of fun, cheesy, Warner Brothers cartoon-like thing this mm-hmm. was going to be. And, you know, and, and that's what, you know, Stephen said to me when, when we talked about it after he'd seen it. That was the charm of it for him, was that we were, of course, willfully trying to send up science fiction movies, you know, alien movies, Martian movies, The War of the Worlds, Warner Brothers cartoons, and give homages. He said his favorite shot. He goes, I love that shot you did with the little police car going along under the road, under yeah. the stars. He goes, don't think I didn't recognize that. I said, I wanted you to. <laughs> you never seen it. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, Blasdy has one of those famous Warner Brothers lines in it. When I say whoa, I read whoa. <laughs> Uh, I I remember because I watched it and I'm like wow, but I just remember that uh, trailer though, and they had overdubbed it with Louis Louis and some some odd well, dialogue. There, and... there is not, I don't think. Maybe when I say whoa, I mean whoa is in there. Yeah. That might be the only line 
of actual dialogue from the movie that's in the trailer. Yeah. It's got, it's got the William Tell overture. And, and toga, toga, and it's all basically frat boy dialogue. It's Animal House dialogue done in our Martian voices. And they're not even the actual Martian voices either. They're just other voiceover artists they got doing these horrible lines. And people were like, this trailer sucks. You know, it, it, I think it cost us more business than it gained us. You know? mm-hmm. um, but you never know. I mean, Disney's in the business of putting movies in theaters, and, and, and they know how to sell movies, you know. Uh, especially now. I mean, I think what they're doing now, they've become, I think, they're the... Weirdly enough, there was a period of time when I when I thought that they were, not the death of movies, but I was worried that they were going to create a sort of sausage factory of movies that weren't worth releasing, and now they're really making a lot of movies that are worth releasing. Yeah. The whole Marvel Universe is amazing. <laughs> Truly amazing. It's an industry unto itself. Star Wars is now what I always hoped it would be, which is essentially a new genre. It's, yeah. it's a backlog. It's the new Western where, you know, over time, if it continues to succeed, the, I think the model might be, look, bring us your Star Wars project. If we like the script, you can play in our sandbox. Yeah. Why not? I mean, <laughs> what, what if, you know, you know, if Jim Cameron wants to make a Star Wars movie, great. If, you know, if, uh, if yeah, but I'm, I'm looking for, I mean, what if, like, really interesting indie uh, directors, like, sure. decided to do some kind of amazing drama set in that backlog? Or, you know, a film noir piece, or a, you know, or a, a murder mystery, or a, or a romance, or whatever, a, a buddy comedy. Why not? <laughs> I mean, do it all. You could just let it be a new. It's like a parallel universe in a, t- a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago. I'm okay with that. Um, I am too, and it's Disney. I, I always mention to someone that if Disney wants something to be successful, they will make it. <laughs> it it'll be successful. <laughs> that's true, and that's that's really true. I just thought it was ironic that they originally passed on it, saying only if it's going to be Ernest meets the Martians. You know, for thirteen million dollars, and then instead we spent two, and they make twenty, and everything. You know, it worked out. It was it was great for me. I mean, obviously, it launched. It was not in any way, shape, or form what I thought I would do as my first film. I mean, I wanted to do, you know, epic science fiction. I, I had a thing called Star Sailor, which was captains courageous on solar sailing vessels, and you know, but but not not like Treasure Planet. I mean, serious sci-fi right. with sort of post NASA Renaissance. You know, the spacecraft that Elon Musk is going to be building, the spacecraft that Virgin is building, you know, and, and, you know, 30 years hence. Sure. You know, where is that going to go? Once the, the once we've left the solar system, but just barely. We're not trekking around in, in you know, in warp speed quite yet. We're just touching the, the hem of that, you know, in this in that script. Um, but I, you know, to, if someone had told me when I started out that my first feature would be, you know, a bunch of little green men running around with, Malfunctioning, you know, Cosmo Blasters. I would have said, Nah, no, 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 that won't happen. But I, but it's, it kind of worked out perfectly. I'm really happy. I, I, I love the film. Uh, one of my uh, friends, uh, Tom Burdinsky, he makes a lot of indie horror films. Uh, he mentioned uh, actually he's big into the special effects. He did giant rubber monster film and that he does all these great miniature effects. But he mentioned that it was an underrated com- uh, comedy, and I, I have to agree that Space Invaders, I think is one that deserves more attention. And I will say the promotion, I think, did kind of uh, miss, you know, uh, I don't think the trailer did do it justice because when I got in there, the film was actually a lot better than the trailer led on. <laughs> you know, I got out of the film going, wow, that wasn't anything like the trailer, but I'm well, glad it wasn't anything like this. It's funny because the trailer sent away the, the audience I was looking for. What I was looking right. for was the audience that got the joke. Mm-hmm. The audience they were attracting, there were no jokes waiting for that audience. 
the ones that wanted to see Animal House, or I mean, not even Animal House. It wasn't that smart. The trailer. No. The, it, it, Animal House is a really funny, sharp-witted satire on top of a bunch of boorish behavior by John Belushi and others. You know, it's it's got everything. It's got something for everybody. We didn't really have something for everybody. We had something for it's. I mean, it's pretty sophisticated stuff. Some of the humor. I mean, some of it's. You, it's a lot of movie references, a lot of historical references, a lot of, a lot of in jokes, a lot of uh, entendre. There's all there's there's a lot of stuff going on there. I don't mean it's you know it's epic writing or anything, but it's funny writing. It's it's really clever writing, and it and it and it works. The, the audience that discovered it and have stuck with it and have supported it, and the reason we're even talking about it 25 years later at all, it was funny. I, Anyways, that audience are people that dig a little deeper and want a little more, right. you know. Um, and then the Guardians of the Galaxy audience, had they been in theaters, would have would have liked. <laughs> um, the, I think, you know, one of the things that's really funny is that, as a joke, I was talking to John Knoll at one point about doing, you know, like the 25th anniversary re-release special edition of Space Invaders with amped up effects, <laughs> you know, and, and like really grossly over amped up, like sure. like ridiculously so, so that it was like, you know, the, the worst moments of the special edition, time <laughs> 10. And, and, and little things like every now and then a little budget counter would show up and, go, you know, and, and cut away now and then to executives like hanging themselves. <laughs> You know, we're gonna lose the whole studio over this. You know, and the exterior of the box would be things like, you know, you know, now see it as it was always meant to be seen, at all, at all. <laughs> um, nice. I, I, I would have bought it. Uh, and you got like a 27th anniversary edition. There you go. <laughs> you had a great cast in there too. Uh, I, I really love the cast. They all, everybody. That's what I really loved about Space Invaders. Everybody seemed into it, and you had Ariane Rogers, uh, excuse me, oh, yeah, Richards, right. who would go on to do Jurassic Park. Let me and... tell you a funny story about that, real quick. She, uh, after the film was done, and in fact, on the very day I went over for my meeting with Kathy Kennedy, I was I was walking towards her office through the courtyard at Amblin, and all of a sudden, out out from the door from her office comes Stephen walking the other way. Now. He doesn't recognize me because the first, why would he? I'd seen him once for one for 15 minute period or half hour period on the set of Close Encounters. And we talked and hung out and he showed me a lot of cool stuff and I, it was amazing. But he didn't recognize me, of course. I recognized him and I thought, I, I can't, I can't. I, I, so he walks by me and then I thought, no, I can't let that moment go. So I spin around and I go, Steven. <laughs> now imagine you're Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And people are always coming at you, and you never know what the next, who's going to what, you know. So he stops, he freezes in his tracks with his back still turned to me. And he slowly turns, like, oh, God, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> is this the ambush, whatever? And I'm like, oh, I'm so, I, it's Pat, Pat, Patrick, Pat Johnson, Patrick B. Um, Space, uh, Martian. And he goes, oh, okay, okay, okay. And he comes over, and he's like, oh, I really liked your movie while he's talking. And he, and that's when he said, oh, I really like the little homage shot. And I, and, you know, he, he was just basically really cheering me up and telling me what a nice job I'd done and how I really enjoyed it and blah, blah, blah. And then he, then he goes, but wait, this is the thing I've got to ask you. Who is that little girl? Where did you find her? I've got to work with her someday. I've got I, I just, I got to know more about her. I said, anything you want to know, she's amazing. She's so fun to work with, blah, 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 blah. Next thing I know, I'm reading Ariana Richards cast in Jurassic Park. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well done, Stephen. Well played. <laughs> nice. And, to do, and then, what a sweetheart. She goes and do, does a couple of those little dinosaur mm-hmm. movies, and then, <laughs> yeah, she gets that out of her system. 
I, no, I love those ones. And then she, um, I, I call her up when I'm doing Angus, and I say, listen, you don't owe me anything, but if you don't mind, if you come back, and, and she was, couldn't have been happier to do it. It wasn't even a, it wasn't a, well, you know, now I'm Ariana Richards. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm of Jurassic Park fame. She didn't, didn't pull that at all. She was yeah. so sweet and did a great job. And she's still, she even um, was, uh, at one point, she was going to play the character of Robin in my current film I'm mm-hmm. still working on, 52577. Um, and she may yet do some little cameo for it. We, there's a couple of little last-minute touches we're going to put in before we get out there. Oh, that'd be great to see her. And then the the other casting that I I love, and it was one of his last films, was Royal Dano. How'd he? How'd you get him? You know, he was suggested by a casting director, and of course I knew who he was. I mean, he he his part, uh, the right stuff is one of my favorite films of all time, and I and he is so remarkable in it. In in a, a part that has I don't think more than a line of dialogue, maybe. It's mostly he just shows up, you know, getting out of a car with a Bible and a certificate from the Air Force, you know, with this mournful look on his face, and you're like, ugh, it's death himself, you know. But, you know, he, it was funny because we interviewed a lot of people. When, when DeForest Kelly didn't work out, I mean, Rance Howard came in, and we had a great session with him. The producers didn't want to go with him. I loved him. I thought he was yeah. great. Um, they just, the producers, for some reason, said, oh, he, was, he doesn't mean anything or whatever. And I said, well, honestly, DeForest Kelly means this much. Yeah. You know? And so they... And, and Royal didn't really mean anything, except he was a great actor, as was Rance, as was DeForest. It, it, I just wanted great actors, and I wasn't, my head wasn't in the space of, oh, we have to somehow sell the movie. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to make a good movie. You know, I, I thought that counted. You know, uh, there were a lot of people up for the part uh, that Ariana got originally too. Lindsay Price um, was originally actually, she was my choice. I actually wanted her to have the part, and I, in fact. You know, kind of, we, we kind of decided on her. We kind of, I think everybody thought she was getting it, and then the foreign money guy that was in charge of everything, who had the bucks, said, "I don't know, I don't, I want, I want to go with blonde hair. I don't want to, I don't want someone to from another country." I said, "She's American. You know, she's kind of Japanese. I don't know." I said, what, "Can we just make a good movie here?" No, no, not at that time. So it was, yeah, it was kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Drifting just a little bit away, I have to ask you, since I have you here, uh, you were involved in one of probably my favorite films that I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with, Dead Heat. I got to talk about Dead Heat just because uh, Joe Pesci, Treat Williams, I watched it. Joe Pesci, Joe. Uh, Joe uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Joe, uh, Joe Pesci, uh, Joe Piscopo. Joe Piscopo. Piscopo. I always sorry. I if all my Joe's crossed of the two Joes, yeah. Sorry, Joe Piscopo and yeah. Treat Williams and Darren uh, McGavin and Vincent Price. <laughs> now, and who else? Uh, that movie. I'll tell you what. I had so much fun doing that movie. My my David Helpern and Michael Meltzer were the producers who were friends of mine, and I was also at the time out of work and. They needed someone to come in and, and ride herd on visual effects. I was not – I'm credited with, with visual effects supervisor on that film, but the truth of the matter is it was really Steve Johnson and his team that, that masterminded the, the effects. I certainly was kind of a liaison between the producers and the director and them in a, in a kind of you know keeping an eye on things way. 
but I didn't know nearly enough about it. I mean, I knew quite a bit about it, but only enough to kind of get myself into trouble sometimes. And it was really those guys. who What I did help pull off were some of figuring out how to do certain practical effects. Um, sure. I helped design some of the sets. You know, the, the resurrection chamber was based on a sketch that I'd done. And uh, the, um, you know, uh, the, yeah, I was, I, <laughs> I was also the body under the table on the reservation. <laughs> so many great stories about that. I mean, in fact, one of the, 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 the DVD, if you get the DVD, it has a director's commentary with the producers and the director on there, and they, they were really sweet and kind because in, in, I was way ambitious. I was so dying. This was right, right before I directed anything, and I'd right. sold a bunch of scripts, and I was, I was kind of trying to insert myself in every open crevice in that movie to try to fill any crack that was there with, with knowledge or experience or something or just unbridled ambition. Um, and I was a real pain in the ass, but I... <laughs> And I thought they'd never even speak to me again, you know, after it was over. Because I, even though I did a lot of work for them, I was also a real pain in the ass. But on the DVD, they were so kind to me. They were, they were, they just brought brought me up again and again. Oh, remember this was that thing that Patrick said we should do, or this is so Patrick designed that, or oh yeah, this was that moment. And I was like, wow, what? A, how kind of them to a, remember and b celebrate this? Because at the time, they were like, okay, kid, shut up. <laughs> Thank you, <but> shut up. <laughs> um, I. It, Working with all of those guys, I mean, Treat Williams was amazing. He was yeah. he was really hardworking, funny as hell. He also uh, flew helicopters. Oh, okay. Let me, let me, here's how I got close to Treat. At a certain point, the schedule was kind of overwhelming. It was a really ambitious project, and and, and Mark Goldblatt, who did a great job with the material, and it's a funny script, you know, um, mm -hmm. and but it was it was difficult to do. It was very very difficult to pull off. It's almost all practical. There's no no digital work in there at all. So at a certain point, they were falling behind schedule. And he was in danger of losing some really critical scenes that he wanted, like the Chinese butcher shop. Yeah. So he had only gotten to – in fact, it was basically on the chopping block, if you'll pardon the expression, <laughs> because it was just so ambitious. And so what they did was they basically said, look, unless you turn this into a second unit scene, we're going to cut it. And he's like, you can't cut that scene. It's the pivotal scene, and, and plus I got Key Luke. <laughs> you know, I got <laughs> – and, and what's his name? Object, not object, but the big uh, yeah. Japanese American guy. Um, they, he was so bereft. He said, "Patrick, can you? Would you shoot this scene second unit? You can use the you know Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo and all the makeup effects people and just shoot at night on the set while we're not here and use the same equipment. And everything." I said, "Yes, of course <laughs> I do this." So for three nights, uh, this. You know this crazy group of makeup effects people and myself and uh, the woman who would end up being my, my first wife, <laughs> Carolyn Fahm, who was the first AD. She and I, this group, created a little unit and shot that whole scene. Oh wow! <laughs> and when it was over, it was you know it was cut together and it was you know the movie was put out there and the movie you know did what it did just like Space Invaders. It went out and made some money, but it was you know not, none of us are going to be in the top ten hundred you know hundred films. <laughs> Or there's no Criterion editions coming, but that's okay. Um, but I, but to my and a little bit of embarrassment, but also great pleasure, just for the fact that it helped me in my career. There were reviews of this film that said, you know, ah, yeah, well, you know, yeah. But there's this one scene, <laughs> and I was like. Maybe I can take these reviews and the scene itself and my script for Space Invader, Martians, and find a way. And by the way, I had that scene on tape uh, with the review <laughs> when I went into Luigi Cingolani's office to, to sell Martians. You know, sure. said, Look, I can do this. <laughs> 
So I actually owe Mark Goldblatt and, and, and David Helpert and Michael Meltzer a lot for giving me an opportunity to, to shine. Sure. You know, um, you know, I wanted to please them more than anything. At the time, I didn't I didn't ever think that one scene in a horror movie starring Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo would lead to me directing my first feature later that year. You know? Right. So it, it was really fortunate that they gave me that opportunity. I was, I was pretty thrilled. That's it, it, a fun movie. It was it was cable fodder, that's for sure. But uh, you know, played a lot. But I I enjoyed it. I mean, those two, Joe uh, Joe and Treat were just fun to watch. They were, and, they, and, and you know, it was an unlikely pairing at best. But I made a lot of friends in that movie. A lot of the mm-hmm. elements that came forward and, and and went into Space Invaders were forged in in, in that crucible, sure. and. Um, it was a, you know, I'm I'm proud of it. Um, I was proud of working on Steve Miner's film Warlock. You know, and that was another one that helped me get a, a, a secure a number of things I needed to, to make my movies. You know, on um, which one Warlock did you say? Warlock, yeah. Julian Sands Warlock, really. Yeah. <laughs> Visual effects supervisor on that too. Right, <laughs> that's another one of my favorites. <laughs> it's a, a, it, you know. David Tui wrote it, and Steve directed it, and the uh, you know it was it was a really ambitious film. Boy, they had they had a set this sort of Boston Harbor a Boston Harbor side graveyard set for the end of the movie, and it was a forced perspective set on a huge stage, and it was beautiful, really well done. Yeah, there's a lot of great effects on that, and the other film uh, that had great effects on it that you uh, wrote, uh, Dragonheart. I, I, I love Dragonheart. Where did the idea for Dragonheart come from? I have to ask. Um, I I love the period. I love dragons. I love. I, what, the problem is, I don't love fantasy that much. I, I, I don't like things that where where magic is constantly coming in at the last moment to sort of save the day, unless it's magic that's been set up in some, in essence, believable sure. through line thread. You know, I I like logic. I like science fiction. So I wanted to do, you know if it makes any sense at all, a logical fantasy film with a heart, literally. I, mean, <laughs> I, I had thought to myself, you know, what happens when the last, there's, there's only one dragon left and you're a dragon slayer. What happens then? What do you do? You know, you kill him, you're out of work, you know, but you can't let him live because he's your sworn enemy, <laughs> you know, and what, what is the dragon thinking? You know, huh, you know, if I play this right, I've got a job for life. <laughs> So I, you know, I came up with this concept and I and I pitched it to Rafaela De Laurentiis and she loved it. Patrick, I love it so much. I can't wait for you to write this script for me. And I'm like, great. When do we start? She goes, that is one of the problems. I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> I don't need a lot of money. She goes, okay, I don't have any money. But what I do have is a hotel in Bora Bora. So she goes, so I'll send you and your writing partner, Scott Alexander, to Bora Bora. All expenses paid for two weeks and you write me a script and you can just charge anything for two weeks in Bora Bora. Wow. <laughs> wow. She sends us down there, and we get no work done because it's Bora Bora. <laughs> I mean, come on! No, we we did we started the work. We actually started off with bang. We were really going. We got it like 15 pages in, and and I and I looked at what we'd written, and I went, "This isn't working." Because it's Bora Bora, <laughs> but more because. I realized I wasn't, we weren't really up to the task of writing the film that I saw in the theater of my mind. We were writing, I was veering off, losing altitude, stalling back towards Monty Python all the time, which I love. I love Monty Python, but I couldn't see this movie playing at that level. I wanted it to be richer. I had had just seen Henry V 
um, Kenneth Branagh's version. Right. Just floored by the humanity of it, right? By a Shakespeare film that made me cry my eyes out. The Battle of Agincourt, the St. Crispin's Day speech, the whole, I just, I, I said, I want Dragonheart to be that movie with a dragon and slightly less Shakespearean, you know, dialogue, but not sure. much. <laughs> I just was not that writer. Right. So I came back, you know, on my shield instead of with it. <laughs> I came back, Scott and I came back, you know, tanned, thin, having had incredible adventures and, you know, and eating great food and drank a lot of whatever was, you know, fruity drinks. Yeah. But I didn't have a script, and I said, I'm sorry, but we still, you know, we've got a story. That we kind of worked out for the most part. At that point, we were like, okay, we've got to cast our net a little wider. And, again, Melinda Jason, my manager, and thankfully Charles Edward Pogue's manager, decided, hey, what about Chuck? He's, he knows the period. He's, you know, he's involved with the Conan things and Crow, uh, Call and Call the Conqueror he's writing for Universal. I'm like, let's meet. So he and I met. I pitched it to him. He said, I'm in. I said, I'll do this. And I, Absolutely. And he was a big get. I mean, this is a guy. He was a top of the game, you know, universal sure. fairhead boy at that moment. And, you know, he was a, he was a perfect get for this. Nonetheless, the studio, I don't think, I think only Raffaella believed in it enough to really push them to pay. Mm -hmm. And they did. Uh, and so Chuck and I met and we met and we met and we, we met and we kept working on it and we refined the story down to essentially what it is now. And then he went off and did the first draft. He turned it into me and I was just, I was like, damn. <laughs> and we turned it in on a Friday to the studio for the weekend read. Monday morning, Raffaella calls us and says, we have a green light. We're going to go. <laughs> wow. And so literally a week later, we're on a plane to Spain to sure. hang out and look at castles for a couple <laughs> of weeks, you know, and go to England to start work on the Henson Creature Shop full-size Draco head. Uh, ah. That's a whole other, that's another podcast. Yes. I've got Hours of footage of all of that. Uh, nice. Jimmy did a full-size talking Draco head, voiced by Patrick Stewart. Uh, you know, I was over there for weeks developing with them. Their their entire shop was devoted to building this thing for a test. The test went incredibly well, but and there's more to tell. We really should do another talk sometime about sure. footage and show you why it didn't work and why it didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, what was my? You know, I made a couple of critical errors. It wasn't using heads of creature shop. That was the, the right choice. The wrong choice was how I sold the test and how I uh, sold what, how ambitious the test was versus you know Brian Henson had told me just stick the head through some black cloth and let it do some routines, and I tried to make it into a little mini movie, <laughs> sure. miniatures and sets and forests and opticals, and it became unfortunately kind of a shitty low budget, you know. Scene. Yeah. From a shitty low budget dragon <laughs> with a great dragon in it, you know. So it yeah. killed me. It just it actually yeah. really destroyed my chances of directing the film. Yeah. Uh, which was sad because Liam Neeson was going to play the knight at that point. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> of the it was going to be Kara, and you know we had uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith was going to do the score, and I had I had Sean Connery to do the voice. It was a, we had a dream cast, a dream crew, we shoot it in Spain. Everything was lined up, and then I did this test and I ruined it. Oh. By, by being sure. more ambitious than the test needed. Right. So, anyway. Well. Yeah, some <laughs> and now, uh, you're work, are you working on, you're working on a, another project that's been going on for a while, correct? You're, uh, what is it, 52577? Yes. That's a, that, you're, uh, I, I, you know, Boyhood took 12 years to make. And sure. 
Like, you know, but we have the idea first, because we'll be at least 12 years by the time we're done. <laughs> um, but uh, did you want to give a little just brief summary of what that the one's about? first kid that ever saw Star Wars, mm-hmm. and he saw it three months before it was in theaters, and he's from Wadsworth, Illinois, population 750. How did that happen? And he saw it <laughs> at ILM with John Dykstra and a guy named Herb Lightman, who was the editor of American Cinematographer magazine. How that happened, how that kid from Wadsworth, Illinois, population 750, became the kid who saw Star Wars before any other person, and then had to go back to his little town trying to tell people about the thing that was going to change his town enough, because it was going to change the world. It was going to change his town enough that he wouldn't have to leave it. Sure. He could just get everybody to the theater on opening night. Right? (laughs) That kid was me. And... The, uh, how that happened is the story of the movie. So I can't tell you much more than that at this point, but I will do. I'd love to. There's a moment coming up soon that would be a great time for us to do another talk about that, and I'll bring footage. I can give you some exclusive looks, and, and we'll, uh, you know, maybe give you the history of the thing, and you'll understand why soon that I that, that doing another podcast would be a great idea. <laughs> you bet. Uh, I definitely look forward to it. Uh, I think we'll... Uh, wrap it up here for this episode but I'd definitely be happy to talk to you again uh, so we'll line that up so everyone uh, really quick Patrick where can they find you or you know on social network and that where can people uh, find your stuff you can there's a couple of places uh, you can just find me at you know Patrick Reed Johnson R-E-A-D there's there's two of me there's the one that has anybody the one that's empty is one I put up for another project a while back uh, so you can ignore that one, but the one that has, I don't know, 1,700 friends or something, uh, find me and just click on it and we'll, we'll become friends. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm picky, but only in terms of, you know, be cool. Be cool. <laughs> as long as you're not out to destroy the world or anything, I'm, I'm usually easy to become friends with. Um, there's also a new page <clears throat> for reasons you'll find out later called uh, Pat Johnson slash fan one. Or is it? It's, it's Pat Johnson either slash fan one or underscore or something. You'll find it. Sure. Um, and it's 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 a movie character page. Oh, okay. Uh, of which there's like two members right now. I just put it up like two days. ago. <laughs> That's going to become a really fun one in terms of information about five twenty five seventy seven. Awesome. Uh, and there's lots to tell about that. <clears throat> you know, I will say this. A lot of people said, "Oh, the movie is never going to get finished. He doesn't. He's like Kubrick, or he, he can't finish. He doesn't know how to finish it. None of those things are why it's not out yet. Sure. None of those things." Um, the true story of why it's not out is fascinating and interesting, and I couldn't even talk about it for a little while, but I'll be talking about it more soon. Sure. But the fact that, that let me put it this way, the time for it to come out is, is rapidly approaching. Oh, I imagine. I imagine. The, it'd be a... few people that were interested in putting it out before had said, you know, God, you've made such a cool movie. It's too bad Star Wars is over. And this was <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> Three yeah. years ago. Release this, but there's really no, you know, that's done. You yeah. know, oh, Marvel now. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> of course, I, I won't say I knew things because I didn't know anything specific. Sure. But anything I did know, I mm-hmm. couldn't say a word about it at all to anyone, including my friends and relatives. Nobody, because I'd be excommunicated, I'd be destroyed, and my new friends, I, you know, and I so. I had to shut the hell up and just sit back and let people say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's never going to get it. He'll never have it. Knowing <laughs> that it would. Sure, sure. But knowing that I was going to have to sit down and shut up and do oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Luckily, I have amazing investors who've stuck with me the whole time who said, you know, yeah, get it out while we're alive. That would be nice. <laughs> we really have, by and large, in fact, all of them so far have just said, look, we just want it out there and we want right. it 
those two, those are the conditions. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not even. A lot of them have said, I, well, "I already wrote off the money. I'm, I, I want them to get their money back, and they will actually. Uh, they're going to." But they were a lot of them actually at, at this point have said, "I just like the movie. Sure. I always liked it. That's why I invested. I want to see it on the big screen. Theaters everywhere." You know. Well, uh, we'll look forward to it. Keep an eye out for it, folks. Look for uh, that out soon, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again once it is out, maybe or close to coming out. We can talk again about uh, about that film. Would so, love to. Uh, I, I appreciate you coming on the show, Patrick. So it was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Uh, have fun at Stevens Point. Oh, you bet. Actually, uh, we'll be on your way in, uh, in uh, first last week of June, first part of July. So maybe we'll pop in. Oh, nice. Uh, and then we'll be right on the way of the Wisconsin Dells. So. Oh, nice. That'd be great. Uh, so uh, we're going to drop off here. I want you, if you want to hang on for a second, Patrick, I want to talk a little bit. But uh, everyone check it out and look for our episode of the 25th anniversary of Space Invaders as well as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming soon. <laughs>